Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 215 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, once again, thank you so much for an incredible launch week last week for Didn't See It Coming, my brand new book all about overcoming the seven greatest challenges nobody expects, everybody seems to experience. You don't have to be a cynic and stay a cynic. Uh, burnout, you can recover. Uh, same with pride, same with irrelevance. That's what the book's all about. And man, the emotional reviews, the ones uh, we've gotten numerous now that have said, hey, I'm putting this on my reread list. Like there's not a whole lot of books on this. And then a lot of you who have started reading the book are like, okay, I'm getting a bunch for my team. So thank you. Man, what a great week it's been. So I want to talk to you about audiobooks today. So true confession, okay? And some of you are going to be like, what? Uh, your, your respect for me is going to go down, like even lower than it already is. But I do not listen to a lot of audiobooks. And that didn't stop me, however, from recording one. So I just want you to know, partly because I can't get through all the podcasts I want to listen to. So that's sort of my audio consumption. However, I do know that audiobooks are the hottest thing going right now. And really, listening is the new reading. If you if you follow the trends, I mean, you guys, a lot of you listen on audiobooks. What are some of the advantages? Well, one is you can listen at 1.5 speed, and a lot of you do. So what that means is maybe like this podcast, you can just speed it up and, you know, get right through it, which is incredible. Another thing is a lot of people, you know, they just don't have a lot of time or take a lot of time to read. And so suddenly you can power through a whole bunch of books. So I don't know. I would love to know in the show notes comments, are you an audiobook listener? And then what do you love most about audiobooks? And maybe even what do you like least? So when we were doing the audiobook, and that's what you're going to get today on this, this bonus episode, you're actually going to get chapter one of the audiobook for Didn't See It Coming. So that's free just because you guys subscribe because I love you. And uh, I, I recorded it myself this summer in Toronto. We went down to a studio, which was really cool because like, you know who's recorded in that studio? Drake, uh, Justin Bieber, uh, who else? 50 Cent recorded there. I'm trying to remember. It was it was crazy. Like there were tons of people. Oh, I know Bruno Mars did Uptown Funk in that studio. So if if I just got a little bit cooler in my delivery, yeah, it's because, uh, you know, their vibes were still in the room. No, I'm kidding. I was locked away in a little tiny booth and just read this for two days. And I actually think the the book that I recorded gets better as it goes along. You guys can be the judge. So you're going to get chapter one. It was the very first thing I recorded. And the question I had to answer or ask at least for myself is like, how do you read an audiobook? Because I've read an audio, you know, I've read audiobooks before, listened to audiobooks. It's not like I never listen. And it's like, you never thought you'd be a cynic, did you? It's not like in your sophomore year of high school. And I'm like, what? You know, so I didn't want to read it that way. And so I asked people, how do you how do you like, I, I did a little poll on Facebook and Instagram, how do you like your books read? And a lot of people prefer a more dynamic reading, like hands down. So I did a more dynamic reading. So you'll, you'll hear it. I got better as the book went on, just to be honest with you. So like I tried it this way. You never thought you'd be a cynic, did you? 
It's not like in your sophomore year of high school, beside your yearbook photo, you wrote, I hope to grow jaded, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I tried to put a little more inflection, a little more of me in that. So anyway, see what you think. This is chapter one of the audiobook version of Didn't See It Coming, my brand new book. It's yours for free just for being a podcast listener. And what's really fun at the time of recording this, two days after launch, like last week, if you're doing this in real time, um, the audiobook is outselling the Kindle version. So number one, sales coming through hardcover. And we have been, this is incredible, the number one, two, and three bestsellers in religious leadership all week. So the hardcover book is number one, uh, the audiobook is number two, and the Kindle is number three. So this is incredible. Also the number one, two, and three new releases, most wished for book in Christian leadership on Amazon. So you guys have made this incredible. Anyway, I just wanted to give you my little take on audiobooks. And you know what, this fall, I'm going to listen to audiobooks as well. So where can you get the audiobook for Didn't See It Coming? Well, you can get it at Audible Direct, or you can go to amazon.com and find it there. And anything related, whether you're an audiobook listener, Kindle, or you prefer hardcover, which is where I land these days for the most part with my books, you can get it all at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. So just go to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. Everything you need is there. And now, as promised, here is chapter one of the audio version of Didn't See It Coming, read by me. Chapter One Find Me a Happy Lawyer How Cynicism Snuffs Out Hope You never thought you'd be a cynic, did you? It's not like in your sophomore year of high school, beside your yearbook photo, you wrote, I hope to grow jaded and distrustful of humanity by the time I hit 40. I'm also hoping my cynicism will damage my family and make me impossible to work with. Go Ravens! Had you written that in high school, somebody would have insisted you go to counseling immediately. But that wasn't your headspace. You were optimistic, even hopeful. By the time you hit your early 20s and shed the yoke of your parents, you were downright idealistic. You knew how to make the world a better place, and you were intent on doing it. That's my story, too. As a young law student working in downtown Toronto, I oozed optimism about setting the world right. I wanted to practice constitutional law and argue my first case before the Supreme Court of Canada prior to my 30th birthday. I even discovered that someone with a positive attitude and healthy work ethic could make a difference in a downtown firm. I was a newlywed, and halfway through my first year at the law firm, I became a new dad. I wanted to be successful, yet not work the slavishly long hours young lawyers were famous for, working every night and most weekends. Some firms in the downtown core even had cots in the office, and hired in-house chefs so their employees didn't have to go home or leave the office. I didn't want that to be me. So I hustled hard. I arrived at the office at 7 o'clock, worked through lunch, and by 5 o'clock managed to sneak out of the office when no one was looking so I could get home to my wife, Tony, and our newborn son. Throughout the day, I focused on being massively productive and getting outcomes our clients and my bosses would love. Strangely enough, I managed to succeed. My idealism smashed through some barriers quickly. Not only did I avoid working the impossible hours lawyers typically put in, but I also actually earned the firm money, something students weren't expected to do. The partners even offered me a job after my year of apprenticeship was over. 
But I found my idealism as a budding lawyer challenged by something I noticed all around me. I was surrounded by lawyers who weren't happy. In fact, many who hadn't even hit age 40 had become downright miserable. I remember one particular Friday when a lawyer in his 30s came into the firm waving a lottery ticket. See this ticket, he said? If I win this thing, you'll never see my face again. The strange part is that he owned the firm and made a big income every year, may I add. It's never a good sign when the owner of a thriving law firm buys a lottery ticket hoping to cash out and leave it all behind. I used to tell my fellow law school graduates, if you can find a happy lawyer in this city, I'll pay you a million dollars. I knew it was a safe bet since none of us could find a happy lawyer. A gnawing negativity. How do people who seemingly have everything end up jaded and disillusioned so quickly? The juxtaposition of sleek office towers, luxury cars, tailored suits, and expensive lunches, coupled with chronic dissatisfaction, still surprises me. But it shouldn't. Jesus told us it was very possible, even probable, that we could gain the world and lose our soul. I get that. But in the trenches of success, I saw more than a happiness deficit in the people around me. I saw a much deeper and more pervasive condition, cynicism. I often wondered, how do you go from idealistic to cynical in just a few short years? It's a troubling question. And over the years, I've asked it again and again. Chances are you've seen it happen around you, too. Your friend, who has had her heart broken many times, now thinks no man can be trusted. Your optimistic college roommate, who went into investment banking, is convinced all his colleagues are simply in it for themselves, which is exactly why he is now, too. Your brother-in-law cop has seen too much too many times to believe the best about anybody anymore, and even your teammate at work shoots down every idea you bring to the table, instantly listing the many reasons your strategy is doomed to fail. The people around you can be depressing. But almost as disturbing as what we see around us is what we feel within us. Cynicism isn't just something other people experience, it's something you sense growing within you. While the timeline may vary given your life experience, here's what many people discover. The optimism of your teens and 20s gives way to the realism of your 30s. By the time you hit 30, many of your once-in-love friends have split up, many of your once-enthusiastic co-workers hate their jobs, and many once-solid friendships have dissolved. So where does the realism of your 30s lead? That depends. Unchecked, it could lead you into the abyss that is cynicism. Sinkhole ahead. I remember the first time I saw cynicism begin to grow within me. I was in my early 30s. Paradoxically, it was in pastoral ministry and not the practice of law that I felt cynicism begin to take root in my heart. Halfway through law school, I sensed God calling me into full-time ministry of some kind. I'd grown up in a Christian home, and after drifting in my late teen years, I recommitted my life to Christ in my early 20s. Despite my renewed Christianity, though, law was my main focus. I never imagined leaving law to pursue preaching or congregational ministry. But that's the amazing thing about feeling called to something. We're taken in a new direction on an unexpected adventure. After sensing God calling me into ministry, 
I took a few years to figure out exactly what that meant. In the meantime, I finished law school and completed the grueling bar admissions course. After passing the bar exam and earning my license to practice law, I shocked everyone, including myself, by heading off to seminary purely out of obedience. Confused about what to do next, I decided to dip my toe into congregational ministry for the first time when I was halfway through seminary. I moved with my wife and young son an hour north of Toronto to a rural community, Oromadanti, to begin ministry in the community in which I still live today. My assignment was to serve three small churches that hadn't hired a full-time pastor or grown at all in more than 40 years. They called me their student pastor. That didn't mean I served students. It meant I served the churches as the senior pastor while still a student. It also meant the pay was half of what they could pay a real minister, but it sounded like a call to me. The churches were tiny. One had an average attendance of six on Sunday mornings. That included slow-moving vehicles and low-flying aircraft. When my wife, son, and I arrived, we grew the church by 50% overnight. It was sensational. The second of the three churches had 14 people in church most Sundays, and the megachurch among the three churches had an average attendance of 23. Naturally, when you're in congregations that small, ministry is inherently relational. You visit people and invest in them, all the while trying to unite them around a bigger vision and a better strategy that will move the mission forward. Even as our churches grew into the hundreds, I did my best to stay relationally connected. In the first decade of ministry, I was in people's homes almost every day. It was tremendously exciting as more and more new people began to show up. I still remember the first time a couple I will call Roger and Mary walked in the door one Sunday morning. It didn't take long to figure out that Roger and Mary had very real needs. They didn't have much money. Their subcompact car constantly broke down. They seemed to go from crisis to crisis in every area of their lives, financial, relational, emotional, and spiritual. Despite being busy now leading hundreds of people, I decided I would help in every way I could. Even though our church had a small budget, we managed to buy Roger and Mary grocery and gift cards. We gave them gas money and made sure their car stayed on the road. I went to their apartment in the south end of town, a 20-minute drive each way, to regularly pray with them, encourage them, and help them as much as I could. Roger and Mary kept asking for more assistance. Their phone calls became more frequent, and I often headed over in the evenings to help them navigate whatever crisis they were facing. I poured my heart and soul into praying for their family and trying to assist them in any way possible. It's not an exaggeration to say I spent more time with their family than I spent with any other family in my first 10 years of leadership. Meanwhile, the little churches grew quickly. More and more people began showing up, and that meant it was difficult to visit people as often as I had previously. There were just too many people. Even as the churches grew, Roger and Mary demanded my personal attention. They were poor and I knew of God's particular emphasis on caring for the poor. In the midst of it all, I noticed a growing ingratitude and increasing neediness from this couple. At times, helping them felt like trying to empty the ocean with a spoon, but I was determined to serve and demonstrate God's grace. Before long, Roger and Mary started to bring their two-year-old niece to church with them. She was a great kid, but discipline wasn't a strong skill in the family. 
Their niece spent time one Sunday morning running up and down the aisles during church, angering some older members. The issue came up at one of our elder board meetings. Some members insisted we had to do something about this child who was disrupting the service. I stood up for Roger and Mary's family, telling the board I'd rather have a church full of unruly kids than a church full of well-behaved senior citizens. Fortunately for everyone, that settled the matter, and I told Roger and Mary that it wouldn't be a problem anymore. Even with that controversy put to rest, this couple seemed to become less and less comfortable as the church continued to grow. Finally, one Sunday morning, Roger grabbed his niece and ran out of the church announcing, This place isn't for us anymore. You don't care about us? We're leaving. I was stunned. Naturally, I followed up with him and asked what on earth had happened. You haven't done enough for us, he said. I had no idea what to say. Seriously? We haven't done enough? Are you kidding me? His comments cut directly and deeply into my small but growing pastoral heart. Roger, I mustered. That breaks my heart. It's not an exaggeration to say that in my time in leadership, I have never spent more one-on-one time with anyone than you and your family. And it's not just me. This community has sacrificed to be here for you again and again. My words made zero difference. He kept insisting our efforts weren't enough and said that we didn't, that I didn't, really care about them. He said that our church had let him down, that we'd abandoned his family at their lowest point. I didn't know how to make the situation better. They didn't want to make it better. Then they left the church for good. The slide into cynicism begins. I was shocked and angry and heartbroken. I honestly didn't have a category for what had happened. It was in that moment that I felt cynicism welling up inside me. It's like a voice inside me was saying, useless. Everything you invested was a total waste of time and energy. And you know what? If he did that to you, others will too. So don't care like you used to. Don't invest in people like you used to. Don't give of yourself like you used to. People will just use you and reject you in the end anyway. There's no point. At that time, I hadn't even heard of writers like John Townsend or Henry Cloud who have helped scores of people understand what boundaries are. Nor was I good at spotting potential mental health issues. I genuinely tried to help, and in the end, I got genuinely burned. That's how cynicism starts. Cynicism begins not because you don't care, but because you do care. It starts because you poured your heart into something and got little in return. Or maybe you got something in return, but it was the opposite of what you desired. You fell in love, only to have that relationship dissolve. You threw your heart into your job, only to be told you were being let go. You were completely there for your mom, only to have her tell you you're such a disappointment. And you can't help but think to yourself, what gives? Most cynics are former optimists. You'd never know it now, but there was a time when they were hopeful, enthusiastic, and even cheerful. There's something inside the human spirit that wants to hope, wants to think things will get better. Nearly everyone starts life with a positive outlook. So what happens? 
How do you go from being so positive to so negative? At least three things happen to the human heart as it grows cynical. One, you know too much. You would think knowledge is always a good thing, but strangely, knowledge will often sadden you. Solomon, who we'll meet again later, was world-renowned for his wisdom. He put it this way, The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Not exactly the most inspirational thing you've ever read. It's like Eeyore wrote that part of the Bible. While that verse may make for a terrible social media post, the insight itself is quite helpful. In some ways, ignorance is bliss. Had I never known that some people like Roger and Mary would end up being disappointed even after a massive investment by a community of people, it would have been easy, even automatic, to keep investing in people. But having been burned, I found that over the months and years that followed, I began to view needy people more suspiciously. Would they treat me the same way? Would they simply walk away too? Chances are you've had a Roger and Mary in your life. Or four. Or six. So trust becomes harder because you know too much. If your heart hadn't been broken a dozen times by different people, you would have found it easy to keep dating. If your business partner hadn't sold you out and gutted the company, you might still be an entrepreneur. If your neighbors hadn't been so difficult, you might never have wanted to build a fence. But now you know too much. You've experienced the heartbreak, betrayals, and backstabbing. You understand that people let you down. You've seen that some people can't be trusted. You know love hurts. You realize that people are fickle and selfish. You recognize that not everyone succeeds despite good intentions and best efforts. The longer you live, the more you know, which is why cynicism and age are frequent companions. Why would Solomon link more knowledge with more grief? Because that's the way life works. Knowledge often brings sorrow because the more you know, the more you see life for what it really is is. I don't intend to depress you, but let's be honest. Life isn't easy. It's a struggle filled with disappointments and setbacks. Look around long enough and you'll see heartbreak everywhere. You'll see fallibility and frailty. You'll see scheming and manipulation. You'll recognize the power plays and the selfish pursuits that make up so much of human existence. In fact, the more successful you become, the more pain you're likely to experience. Just ask some lawyers or most people who are successful. Just ask Solomon. Ecclesiastes is a cynic's guide to the universe. There's a gnawing hollowness that comes with success. And there's a desperate brokenness that comes from doing life with flawed people. Don't worry, hope is coming. But just linger here a little longer to understand why so many cynics struggle with life. Knowledge does bring sorrow. You see life for what it truly is, and it's lacking. Two, you project the past onto the future. Cynicism grows beyond its infancy when you start to protect yourself from future hurt. Having been burned once or twice, you'll tell yourself only fools get burned three times. So you start to guard your heart. You shelter your soul. But what starts as self-preservation soon morphs into something more insidious. You become a bit jaded. You're a little wiser, you tell yourself, but look closer. 
and you'll see a different reality. What you have is not wisdom as much as hurt and fear forming calluses around your heart. In fact, as sharp as you are, you begin to look for patterns. And to your surprise, you spot them. Many people are untrustworthy. Maybe the answer isn't joining another company because no one seems happy at that place either. And you realize the pain of disappointment runs through many of your friends' marriages as deeply as it runs through yours. With age and experience, you become skilled at seeing patterns. You start to do what cynics do by instinct. You project past failures onto new situations. You meet a new couple and suspect they'll take advantage of you just like Roger and Mary did. Better not get too close. You get a new boss and assume she's probably as unfair and arrogant as your old boss. A guy transfers to your team at work and you're sure it's just a matter of time until he screws up. Your cousin gets married and you wonder how long it will be before the newlyweds run into serious problems. You no longer see people for who they are. You no longer see situations for what they could be. You just see potential hurt. Past pain will become future hurt if you let it. So don't let it. That became my reality. Because it wasn't just Roger and Mary who caused me pain. There were others, including friends. In fact, what gave birth to the most cynical phase of my life in my 30s was a series of events that came within a few years of each other. Roger and Mary weren't the only ones who left. As we implemented a radical set of changes at the churches, more people walked away. Men and women I thought were on board with us for life, in fact, weren't. Even though our churches were adding people faster than we were losing them, it didn't make up for the disappointment I felt. Within the first few years of our ministry, a set of close friendships also imploded on us. These were the kind of friends you do life with, concerts, dinners, holidays. I was their pastor and they attended our church, but we were still incredible friends. But for some strange reason, within the span of a year, these friends stopped going to our church and before long, they weren't our friends anymore. It hurt deeply. And I'm still a little confused as to how it all went down. Attempts to make things right didn't work. I know I had a role, in the painful situation, but it's all a bit mysterious and murky. And it led me to decide for a season to go down the road every cynic travels. I'm pretty sure you can relate because something similar has happened to you. Eventually, the wariness makes you weary. Your guardedness and suspicion evolve into anger and bitterness. Three, you decide to stop trusting, hoping, and believing. After those friendships dissolved, I told Tony, I don't need friends, really. Friends were a bad idea. I'm fine on my own. Dumb, I know. But that was my pain speaking. And at that time, it made perfect sense. In fact, it was far safer than the risks new friendships would involve. It's rarely the first round of anguish that breaks your heart permanently, For me, a few previous friendships had also faded over the years, and eventually I questioned whether people were worth the bother. At times, I even wondered if I had some fatal flaw embedded in my personality that doomed friendship. The problem with generalizing, applying one particular situation to all situations, is that the death of trust, hope, and belief is like a virus, infecting everything. 
You think you're protecting yourself from the future when in reality, your new stance infects your present. The people you care about most in the here and now suffer. That's because as a cynic, you project your newfound suspicion on everyone and everything. Your current relationships stall out or dial back a few notches. The withdrawal isn't just from the future. You retreat from the present as well. So you become numb to the people you claim to love most, even your spouse and kids. You find yourself predicting cynical endings to moments that used to fill you with joy. You might also find yourself becoming jaded at work. You don't really want to get to know the new guy because, well, you already know what he's like. And the projects and goals that used to motivate you and excite you, they just don't anymore. Perhaps most disturbingly, cynicism begins to infect your relationship with God. When you close your heart to people, you close your heart to God. That shouldn't surprise us, but it does. It only makes sense that the very act of hardening your heart to people simply hardens your heart. And that's the danger. When you close yourself off to people, you close yourself off to God. You find yourself trusting less and doubting more. When you read through Scripture, you want to put an asterisk beside all the promises you read, convincing yourself they don't apply to you. Even your prayer life becomes stunted. What's the point of it anyway? You feel like you're praying for things that won't happen, so why bother? It's a stifling progression. From knowing too much, to projecting the past onto the future, to snuffing out trust, hope, and belief. But when this process occurs, you have the unmistakable ingredients for cynicism. And whether you're 23 or 63, it's a sad and unnecessary way to live. Why does any of this matter? Have you ever noticed there are very few balanced elderly people? You know how when you're in your 20s and 30s, you still have good days and bad days. You have your ups and downs, but things tend to even out over the long haul. Well, I've noticed this pattern seems to go away when most people reach a certain age. Most of the older people I know have landed on one side or the other of the balance line. They have grown to be either happy and grateful or bitter and crotchety. It's like you reach an age where a magnet pulls you off the center line and lands you on the happiness side or the misery side of life. The I'm having a bad day feeling we sometimes experience early in life morphs into an I'm having a bad life feeling by age 70. Why is that? My theory goes like this. As you grow older, you become more of who you already are. Just like your body stiffens a bit, your personality becomes less flexible. It's like there's this war inside you that's battling for hope. And cynicism will win or it will lose. But you won't just be a little cynical or a little hopeful. The die is cast and the concrete hardens. I felt this dynamic intensely throughout my 40s. It was like a battle for my soul was going on. I finally began to understand how people grow cynical, jaded, and cold-hearted. I had all of that lodged within me. Hope hadn't died, but cynicism was threatening to snuff it out. I realized it would be easy to let despair win. Actually, I realized that left unchecked, cynicism would win. What I needed to understand is what you need to understand— Cynicism is actually a choice. Cynics aren't born, they're made. 
Life doesn't make you a cynic. You make you a cynic. Cynicism is not always a conscious decision, but it's a decision nonetheless. It's the decision you make to stop hoping, trusting, and believing. But think about what's at stake. Cynics never change the world. They just tell you why the world can't change. Ask them. They know all about it. And that's where I knew I would end up unless I changed course. If you've grown cynical, please understand that cynicism happens not because your heart is closed, but because it was once open. It happens because the idealist in you was idealistic, and then life happened. All the hurt happened. Now you're left with a choice. So what do you do? Of course, the cynic might say, there's nothing to be done. This is just a natural state of affairs after having been burned in life. It's not difficult to agree with the philosophers who conclude that life is nasty, brutish, and short, and with those who insist that hell is other people. Sadly, that's where too many people leave the conversation. Cynicism is not inevitable. And even once you become a cynic, you don't have to stay a cynic. There's a path back. It's a path for those who are brave and for those who long to hope again. Cynicism has an antidote. The question is, are you willing to embrace it? Well, I would love to know in the uh, comments to this post, if you go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 215, what you love about audiobooks. Help me to take a deep dive into it. What are the pro tips? Let everybody know. Uh, dive into the comments at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 215. If you can't spell my name, and I'm shocked if you can't, no, nobody can spell my name. My staff, it takes like six months for them to learn how to spell my name. Go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. It's the gateway into everything. And I hope you're enjoying the new graphics for the podcast too. Yeah, we totally rebranded the website and uh, everything I kind of do. And that came with a new podcast logo, which should, I think by this time, be on all of your devices. So Hope this really helps. Hope you enjoyed this special episode. Actually, tomorrow we're back with another one. And I do a Q&A with some of the launch team. We put together a launch team. I'm going to share some secrets, tips, and tricks with you on launch teams for the book. And uh, I had some of them interview me, which was a lot of fun. So there'll be another episode tomorrow. Once again, if you want anything to do with the book, you can find it at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. Just didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. And the book is available anywhere you buy your books, including the audiobook. So you can go straight over to Audible if you want that. But didn't see it coming book.com is your headquarters for everything. Hey, we are back tomorrow. And then next Tuesday, we have a fresh episode. We're sort of back to regularly scheduled things next week. My guest is Andy Stanley. I'm so excited for that. Francis Chan is also up this month. We're going to do a deep dive into their new books and I mean, they get really honest, really vulnerable with what's, uh, what's going on in their lives and in their writing. It, I think you're going to love it. So again, subscribers, you get that for free. I hope this bonus episode, or I guess it's not really a bonus. We're just doing some extra ones these days. But I hope this episode has helped you. And hey, we got to fight the inner cynic, don't we? Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.